You're listening to ReachMD, and this is Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown, and with me is Dr. David E. Cohen, Director of Hepatology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's also the Director of the Harvard-MIT Division of Health Science and Technology and the Robert H. Ebert Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today our discussion is going to focus on pathogenesis and management of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Thank you very much for taking time out of the busy meeting to come and speak with us. Dr. Cohen, I had the privilege of hearing at least part of your talk before I had to run over here and get ready for this interview. We all in lipidology have this experience of patients having mild liver enzyme elevation. Their doctors often inappropriately stop their statins because of it, and then they get sent for a workup and we see steatosis of the liver and I think people think of that as just sort of a benign disease. So I was intrigued with how you separated inflammatory disease versus non-inflammatory. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the difference between non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and alcoholic fatty liver disease to start. So these are good questions, um, especially because they relate to very common conditions in the population. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is is really a, a liver disease defined by histopathology that looks very much like alcoholic fatty liver disease and can be very difficult to, for the pathologist to uh, differentiate. But it occurs in patients who or individuals who don't drink excess alcohol. We define excess alcohol uh, with certain thresholds, most typically two drinks a day for men and one drink a day for women. And and, and we Truly, initially, when, when, when non-alcoholic fatty liver disease started to come on the scene in the late 80s and early 90s, we, we thought we just must be getting inaccurate histories of alcohol from the patients. But then it became clear that um, there really was such a condition, and, and it turns out to be tracking with the obesity epidemic and with uh, patients with, with, with the epidemic of diabetes, and it's really a condition in which um, fat deposits in the liver um, due to the same uh, factors that, um, that, that cause those other conditions. So it really tracks along with those um, factors and, and, and then presents an additional problem of, of uh, what, if any, consequences there are for the liver. So that's the next question. I think, you know, many physicians... Uh, have a patient that has impaired fasting glucose, our typical metabolic mm-hmm. patient, syndrome patient, and they've got risk factors for coronary disease. We're treating them. They get the liver enzymes, as I mentioned, for surveillance on statins, and then they go, oh, my goodness. They get an ultrasound, and it says fatty liver, and then they say, okay, that's all it is. It's fatty liver, as if it's a benign condition. So you pointed out in your talk, and I'd love you to go through that a little bit with mm-hmm. the audience, assuming it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. What should the workup be, and what's the prognosis? So those are good questions as well. So if we take non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, now there are epidemiologic data to say 20 or 30% of the U.S. or Western populations have these prevalences of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, Certainly other countries are now rapidly catching up with us as they industrialize. Um, but but who who in this population or this group of large group of individuals uh, do we actually have to worry about with respect to their liver? And so if we take all comers uh, with with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, eighty percent or so will have what we call benign steatosis on their liver biopsy. That is, they have too much fat, 
but there's no evidence of inflammation in the liver or concerning features that would suggest that their clinical course with respect to their liver uh, concerns us. Um, very few percent of those uh, patients uh, will go on to have significant liver disease. But on the other hand, the less than 20 percent uh, will have inflammation associated with fat in the liver and oftentimes fibrosis. And we call that non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, and that's a separate condition. And those individuals can go on at, at, at uh, significant rates to develop cirrhosis and complications of cirrhosis, including cancer, um, liver failure, uh, over time. And so in a 5- to 10-year uh, time frame from their diagnosis, they can um, develop uh, significant cirrhosis and then complications at rates of about 30%, a third of those individuals. So that's a very important for condition to know about from the standpoint of, uh, of, of, of providing care that's directed at the liver. So that, that, that's an excellent, clear explanation. And I guess what I would take from that as a lipidologist is that we probably should be doing more workup on people when we identify them as having fatty liver. Is there a clinical way to determine the difference between NASH or uh, steatohepatitis versus uh, the more benign, just fatty liver? Or should all these patients get biopsies? What would you, how would you guide those uh, our audience who might pick this up on an ultrasound? So um, th those, uh, th those are excellent points as well. Um, there is no current um, way short of doing a liver biopsy to, to definitively distinguish between non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and simple benign, what we call benign uh, steatosis. Um, however, there are groups of individuals who are at very high risk for non-alcoholic steatohepatitis that really increase our concern and the prevalence of, the, of, of NASH in that population, in those populations. So for example, um, in type 2 diabetics, about half or half or even uh, three quarters of those individuals will have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And of those, uh, up to 90% of them will have NASH. So if one has a type 2 diabetic patient with fatty liver, there's a very high likelihood that that will be NASH even without a liver biopsy. So our clinical suspicion is based on the, the, the baseline risk of the patient. So type 2 diabetes, morbidly obese, um, dyslipidemic patients all have very high risk of having NASH. So right off the bat, even without doing any further studies, we're, we're concerned that they have NASH and may have a problem with respect to their liver. So that's an important clinical history um, that feeds into our, our sort of management um, uh, considerations. Now, there are emerging markers uh, uh, in the plasma that we can send. Um, there are uh, our, our combinations of common tests into algorithms and in and, and, um, uh, risk equations, much uh, similar to cardiovascular risk for risk of fibrosis. But none of these are really sufficient um, to make um, management decisions based on NASH. And so this is a challenge that we're facing in the field because it also ha uh, feeds into our understanding and, and development of drugs for NASH because if, if we really need to know do a liver biopsy to understand the the existence and extent of NASH, that's clearly limiting in the kind of studies that we can do, but that's where the state of the art is right now. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and I'm with Dr. David E. Cohen, Director of Hepatology at Brigham and Women's Hospital. David, I guess then if I were to have a patient that had mixed dyslipidemia, moderate hypertriglyceridemia, glucose of 110, and mild elevation of the liver enzymes, which is a daily occurrence in my <laughs> clinic, and I always want to make sure I'm not missing anything so they're not hypothyroid and maybe they and they get a liver ultrasound and it shows fatty liver should I be sending that patient for a biopsy that's the bottom line that's a and and, and if th- I sent them to you what would you do so what we do th- th- which is a very good question here because um, if you have the prevalence of fatty liver at 30% in the population certainly some and, and then you have enrichment of NASH in patients that, such as you've just described, um, certainly some of those individuals are going to have other causes of elevated liver enzymes. And so one, one, of the first, one of the things we do on our first evaluation is try to exclude the best we can um, the, the coexistence of another significant liver disease with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So we send our workups for viral hepatitis, hemochromatosis, common in the population, uh, autoimmune hepatitis, particularly common in women of the the, the right age, uh, primary biliary cholangitis now, um, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, Wilson's disease, thyroid, celiac disease, other things that commonly um, elevate liver enzymes. And then in the absence of all of them, our, our clinical suspicion that this is just simply NAFLD goes much higher. Now, those blood tests are imperfect and won't capture all of the patients with those conditions. So another feature that I try to include as a diagnostic maneuver is to try to, try to encourage these individuals, these patients, to lose at least some weight. Because if they lose some weight and we can lower the liver transaminases, you know, any appreciable amount, then we can raise our confidence that we're not missing something. And so after six months or a year, some individuals can lose some weight. They can normalize their ALT um, or or at least reduce it substantially. And then we can feel comfortable that we know what we're dealing with. In the absence of that, so if the transaminases stay high or increase, then we would go on to a liver biopsy. And the objective of the liver biopsy in this instance is really less to determine to document the fatty liver disease, but rather to exclude the um, the coexistence of another condition that we would that would need attention. Uh, for for example, autoimmune hepatitis. The management is different, um, but then we usually do get uh, document the fatty liver disease. We can in that case. Uh, tell whether they have NAFLD, uh, simple steatosis, or NASH, and then we can react accordingly. So uh, what do you think? I mean, obviously, we could bombard you with lots of patients like this, and what do you think the the actual uh, percentage of those patients that would end up with a liver biopsy would be? Uh, I mean, it, it was striking to me in your presentation what a high risk the people who do have steatohepatitis have uh, for cirrhosis and for cancer and uh, it made me nervous I don't want to miss those people and my gut feeling was I should probably have more of them get biopsied so but this is your specialty so when when they when you get those patients I'm sure you get lots of them uh, what do you think what percentage would you biopsy and how would you justify not biopsying if you're not sure whether they have inflammation or not 
these questions are also um, important in practice, and they actually get uh, speak to, to management styles. Um, so in my practice, actually remarkably few come to liver biopsy. Um, uh, the main, my main indication for liver biopsy is to exclude these other coexisting conditions, which in the end are, are not that many, but can be important. And so some, some patients come to liver biopsy. Most don't um, in, in this, in our current treatment environment for my practice. And the reason is that I do a liver biopsy to find out information that changes my management uh, of the patient. In current management of non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is essentially the same, which is that we need to make any inroads we can into weight loss and exercise. These are the principal mainstays of therapy. Uh, We really don't have reliable pharmacotherapy. Um, There are therapies in development, but those are research settings. And so so any fatty liver, however documented, really feeds into the same management algorithm, which is diet and exercise, therapeutic lifestyle changes, and then managing the components of the metabolic syndrome that are important to all of us, which are cardiovascular disease, which is the major source of morbidity and mortality in any patient with NAFLD, be it simple steatosis or NASH, and hypertension and uh, smoking, cessation, increased activity. So all of these things are really the are the mainstays of therapies. Now, I do have colleagues that would argue that if you do a biopsy and you see NASH, then you say you, you, you really have to concentrate on your diet and exercise because those are really important. My counter to that is they're really important in anybody who has simple steatosis because simple steatosis is almost tantamount to a cardiac risk equivalent. And so that's just important, as important in the overall health than... Uh, trying to argue that NASH is more important than simple steatosis with respect to the liver. So from that, I would take that the intensity of your follow-up is basically the same on both. You. It, I consider them both, and I tell patients I, I tell patients that that's my approach to that. That so the 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 major things that we talk about are certainly diet and and exercise and weight loss, and I try to um, encourage them along that way by telling them that the amount of weight loss that's required is probably less than they would think. So it only, um, it only uh, requires about 10% of whatever baseline that they're starting at to really have a significant positive impact on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So if one loses 10% of their weight, they can, it's really been shown by biopsy that there are major improvements. And that's sometimes a little bit easier to hear, I think, on the part of a patient if they're 300 pounds, that 270 is a real medical target as opposed to 180 or 150, which would be lovely, but that's really aspirational. Right, right. (laughs) So we have that same discussion, trying to improve blood pressure, fasting, It's all the same, yeah. Everything gets better with 7 to 10%. And this is just the same, yeah. So unfortunately, we have just a little time left, but I, I... don't want to leave this conversation with a, a key point to listeners who listen for lipid information, and that is, uh, is, are there any safety concerns in a patient who does have fatty liver and where the docs are getting nervous because they have mild liver enzyme elevation? So I think the three times the upper limit of normal for removing statins was put into those recommendations for a purpose. 
so people don't remove everybody who's at a cardiovascular risk uh, from stents because of mild liver enzyme elevation. But I, I have the benefit of having an expert here. But what is your approach to a physician who's worried about stent therapy? So that's absolutely true. We, a lot of the, uh, I view a lot of, uh, as a very important aspect of my role is to assure uh, referring physicians that this is safe. And so statins are safe um, uh, in, in patients with fatty liver and other liver diseases, really all the way up into including patients with cirrhosis that are compensated. So they're not having clinical complications of their cirrhosis. Lipid-lowering therapy, particularly with statins, is, um, uh, shouldn't be avoided um, based on a transaminase number um, because we really understand now that, that also statins can elevate transaminases. They don't do any more so in patients with fatty liver disease than in patients without. And, um, and in fact, really over the long term, they tend to reduce um, the, uh, the, the average uh, transaminase values. So, so it's really, uh, and, and they may have a positive impact to an extent on the fatty liver disease. So, so really, it's so important to, to, to have that conversation I, I tell the, um, the referring physician that it's safe to start. If they're more comfortable, I'd be happy to start it. And, um, and just remind them that this is the liver telling them that they're at high cardiovascular risk and managing things by keeping them in perspective. Excellent point. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Cohen, I really appreciate you joining us today on uh, Lipid Illumination. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm Dr. Alan Brown, and you've been listening to Lipid Illumination, sponsored by the National Lipid Association on ReachMD. Please visit ReachMD.com lipids, where you can listen to this podcast as well as many others. And uh, we encourage you to leave comments and share those comments with your colleagues. Uh, thank you again for listening, and I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown.